Good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Father, we commit this time to your care, and we ask you to send your spirit to encourage us, to rebuke us, to change us, to empower us. And Father, we pray that we would leave here a changed people, more aware of our own hearts and how they often betray us, but also, Father, that you would remind us of your sweet and precious eternal promises that call us to rejoice in you regardless of the various difficulties and trials, struggles that we face and are facing even this day. Father, we praise you that we can trust you with every care that we have as we look forward to the day of your coming when the inheritance will finally be ours and we will inherit not only heaven but we will inherit Christ himself in a fresh way. We know, Father, that we belong to him and though we have not seen him, yet we love him but we long to see him face to face. So even so come, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, have your way with us in this hour, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. Well, this morning I'm kind of modifying the preaching schedule. As you know, we were supposed to be in the, at the beginning of chapter 5 of Romans, but I decided that uh, we needed to change things up a little bit because I realized that if I'm coming to a major section of the book of Romans, I don't want to chop it up as I would have to do uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks and few weeks, as so many of you will probably be gone, and uh, we'll be doing Christmas sermons, including this one this morning, and so we're changing things up a little bit. You've probably already noticed that the text for this morning is not out of Romans, it's from First Peter. And so if you would turn there with me, uh, the reason I chose this passage rather than the, a traditional Christmas text is for pastoral reasons. Uh, this has been a year of difficulty and suffering for our congregation. That's the, the thing that I'm most concerned about. But also for the whole world. And everyone you know has been affected by it, either directly or indirectly. This has been a year of suffering. It's been a year of hardship. And so I've chosen this passage because it kind of knits together the experience of personal suffering with the sweet, <laughs> easy for me to say, <laughs> the sweet promises of God and their fulfillment, namely the promise and the fulfillment of the long-expected arrival of Messiah who we know is Jesus, the Christ, the King. And I hope this message will encourage, will be an encouragement to every believer in our church who is experiencing difficulties in various ways. And I know some of your trials, some of you interact with me on a regular basis and I with you. And I'm sure there are many that I don't even know about. There are some who are struggling even now, and they're a part of this church, but they can't be here uh, in the gathered congregation. And so this sermon is for you as well, and it is for me, as I experience whatever it is that the Lord has ordained for me this year, and yesterday, and today, and tomorrow, and whatever it is that the Lord brings. So in short, this message or uh, the message of this passage is this, at least the parts of it that I'm, I'm going to bring to bear on all of us this morning. And it is this, rejoice, O troubled soul, for the wonder of Christmas has secured for you an everlasting living hope. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, if you could stand with me and we will read 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 16. It's an extended passage. And really, uh, having read this and studied it all week, again, 
I really think I could just read this slowly with long pauses and at the end just say the amen. Because it's pretty self-explanatory. And so follow along as I read. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 16. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. By way of introduction, it should, well, I should tell you up front that we won't have time to consider every remarkable doctrine and exhortation to be discovered here in the opening pages of Peter's first epistle. I tell you, it is rich, this rich with glorious truth and practical admonition. This is going to be more like a 20,000-foot flyover from which I think you will still be able to see some of the towering peaks of divine revelation designed by the Spirit for your encouragement and for your sanctification. As we begin, allow me to point out three major themes here. Um, I wish I had time to deal with each one of them. Indeed, my first draft of this was five pages longer than this, and I realized it was going to intrude on your lunch and, and maybe on my position as pastor if I pressed on <laughs> through that much. So let me just tell you the three themes, and you can dig them out for yourself. Number one is suffering. Number two is salvation. Again, these are just themes. And the third one is joy. So here we have these three, right? Suffering, salvation, joy. Suffering, salvation, joy. Not necessarily in that order. But these are the themes that, that govern this passage. Peter's writing this epistle to Christians who are not yet experiencing the persecution of Nero, although Nero was the emperor at the time. But they were struggling with issues that, that might tempt them to turn away, to turn their focus onto things that that the world has to offer, things that they don't have. And they might, they might forget the precious promise of God for, for which we can rejoice, even though, as verse 6 says, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved 
by various trials. At this point in, in church history, the believers were facing the kind of trials that we face. The believers weren't being thrown into the Colosseum. They weren't being burned. They were facing trials like you face trials. It's, it's kind of like the ones that you face, that every person in the world faces. For example, there were occasions, and you can read this in, in 1 Peter, there were occasional, occasional problems with the government. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. There were difficulties with employers or masters, as mentioned in chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. There were also significant struggles taking place in the home between husbands and wives. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. These and many other hardships are the common experience of those who live in the world east of Eden, as they say, outside of the garden. But here's the thing. Peter is writing to remind us that since God has caused you to be born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have a living hope. Not a theoretical heart, hope, not a propositional hope, but a living hope. Why does he call it living? How can a, how can a hope be living? Well, it can be living if it is a person who is alive. Your hope is alive because Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He is risen from the dead. More specifically, this hope is an eschatological hope. There is, in, in one sense, the hope of our personal relationship with Jesus Christ day by day. But what he is reminding us of here is an eschatological hope. In other words, the hope that is yet to come, the fulfillment of promises yet to come, namely that one day we will see him face to face. and We will stand before the face of God justified, and free and reconciled to God. This is our hope. This is our eschatological hope. It is a hope or a promise that will ultimately be fulfilled when the living Christ returns to bring us home. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I long for that. I used to think, Lord, not yet. <laughs> there are things that I want to do as if Heaven is, is not going to live up to whatever my ideals are. And so this is our hope. Now, I only have two points this morning, and as I inter kind of wrap up this introduction, I want to give them to you. They are, and I'm going to give them to you one at a time. They're both questions, and here's the first question. Very simple. Why celebrate Christmas? Why should we celebrate Christmas? Now, I understand that most of the Reformers didn't celebrate Christmas. They didn't celebrate uh, Easter. They just plowed on through. And I get that. I get that. But we live in a different age, different time. And I want to be sensitive to this fact that uh, we have opportunity here to rejoice in Christ, coming together to worship, remembering Christmas. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing that I think God is glorified in. So why? Why celebrate Christmas? Well, of course, the world has an answer to this question, and it doesn't have anything to do with the Jesus of the Bible. Can I say that again? The world has an answer to the question, why celebrate Christmas, and it has nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. Christians, however, have good reason to rejoice and celebrate Christ even in times of suffering, celebrating Christ is not merely an annual holiday for believers. It's something that we do every day. It's just that Christmas gives us a special opportunity to focus on it. And we should note here that Peter is not commanding believers to celebrate Christmas. In fact, this is interesting. In this whole passage, there is no, not one imperative He's not commanding us to do anything. 
He is simply recognizing and reminding us that this is what believers do. This is how believers respond to their trials. He is simply reminding us of the benefits or the gifts that we receive from the resurrected Christ and that they are so wonderful that our joy in them and in him should govern the way that we think and the way that we live. Our lives should be characterized by hope and joy because our eternal salvation in Jesus Christ is real, even as we experience various trials, no matter what the difficulty may be. And I know some of you have faced great, great difficulty this year. I think this is a great text to consider at Christmas time because the long-awaited arrival of Jesus the Messiah marks the beginning of our gospel hope. The many Old Testament promises that one day God would send his Messiah, his Son, to save us began long before the manger scene in Bethlehem. Long before. It proceeded through the 33 years of Jesus' life and ministry. It reached its apex at the cross and culminated in his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. As a pastor and biblical counselor, I, I know that many people struggle during this season. And for them, the holiday is, is not an occasion for joy. It's, it's an occasion for sorrow. And sometimes that's because of the loneliness of singleness. Sometimes it's the loss of a spouse or a, a dear family member. Others struggle with illness that just, just won't let go. It robs them from the freedom of participating in the, the celebrations of the season or even attending church or engaging in ministry that they love. Still others struggle with financial pressures, family breakups, divorce, various kinds of conflict with people with whom you, you work every day, and even hostile family members. It's hard to rejoice when facing difficult trials or when you know that one is waiting for you around the corner at your next doctor's appointment or family gathering. Beloved believers are not exempt from personal suffering. If you think it should be otherwise, think again. God uses the hardships that he brings. He uses them to show you the fallacy of your independence so that you would cast yourself completely upon him and find in your dependence upon him life, eternal life, and comfort and joy that can only be found in him. The danger, however, is that if we're not intentional about addressing our thoughts and feelings in a biblical manner, bad news and unwanted circumstances can rob us of joy the very joy that God wants for us, even at Christmas. Christmas trees can't bring you joy. Presents can't bring you joy. A chocolate pie. I don't know. <laughs> Beloved, God wants us to be ruled by his promises rather than our problems. Notice what Peter says, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In the midst of our suffering, no matter the cause, believers can celebrate and rejoice because God has given them a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Christ. Everything you have 
comes to you through the resurrection of Christ. Hope from God is the ultimate Christmas present. It is the gift of salvation. It is the gift of personal, vital fellowship with God. Jesus Christ, our Lord, purchased this eternal gift with his own precious blood. And he has given it to you freely as a gift of his grace. And it belongs to you. And if it doesn't belong to you, then you could receive it today. If you will humble yourself and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Beloved, this should have a profound impact on our, on our lives today. Why? Well, because Peter says God's gift not only secures eternal life for the future, but fills us with living hope for now, for today. Do you know why many people become sad, despondent, depressed during the holidays? It's often because they either want something they don't have or they have something they don't want. Our thoughts and feelings can be ruled by what we desire but don't have rather than what we have and don't deserve. So Peter reminds us that God has given us something that's infinitely more precious, more valuable, more satisfying, more enduring than any good, lawful thing that we can hope for in this world. What did he give us? Well, he gave us the resurrected Christ. He is our living hope. He is our living hope. But that living hope, Jesus, comes to us with promises. The promises that flow out of his own heart. Let's think about the substance of our hope that comes from Jesus. Peter refers to it as our inheritance. Our inheritance. Look at verse 4. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we too have been raised to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved or kept in heaven for you. It's there, protected. No porch pirate can steal it. It is kept under lock and key with your name on it. Your inheritance. As Tom Schreiner puts it, Peter was inviting the recipients of this letter to look to the future with the sure confidence and inestimable blessing that awaits them. Nor is their confidence baseless superstition. It is grounded in a, in a sec, and is secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their hope, in other words, is the hope of resurrection, triumph over death. Hence, listen carefully, whatever happens to them in this world is trivial compared to the blessing of the future resurrection. Now, what's the deal about future re resurrection? We're talking about Jesus raised from the dead, and here's the connection. Because he raised from the dead, he died and raised from the dead, you too will die and rise from the dead to receive your inheritance, which is primarily Jesus. But it is everything that Jesus is about. And so whatever happens to us by way of suffering is trivial compared to what God has secured for us. And so, my friend, there is nothing in this world that can compare. No money, no relationship, no achievement, no career, no feeling in this life can ever be imperishable. There is nothing you can get 
in this world that is un imperishable, undefiled, and incapable of fading away. Everything breaks. Everything falls apart. The law of entropy affects everyone, even this world. As Paul says, it, it groans waiting for the day of the sons of God. But your inheritance in heaven is all of these things. It is imperishable. It is for you. It is never fading. And it is reserved for you. It is kept for you. It is secured for you. Consider the, the statement of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. This is familiar to you, but we should remember it. Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction. Now, let me just stop there. Light affliction for Paul was being thrown out of the synagogue, dragged out of town, stoned to death, shipwrecked, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. So when I say it is greater than anything you can imagine receiving here on earth, that was not hyperbole. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are unseen, for the things which are seen are temporary, and the things which are not seen are eternal. The question is, do you believe that? I can tell you that there will be moments, and may, many moments, when you will have to fight for faith. You see it, beloved? Why do Christians lose heart? Is it not because we get focused on the temporal rather than the eternal? When our future orientation is set on things that fade and perish... We find it impossible to rejoice in the promises of God in those moments. And Peter would have a shift or orientation away from our circumstances and on to the unshakable promises of God. You should rejoice and celebrate this Christmas because you have been given an inheritance. You have been given an inheritance, starting with Christ and everything that is Christ's. Do you realize, and I haven't said it like this in the sermon so far, when you receive Christ, you receive everything that belongs to Christ. All of it is yours. All of it is yours, if you are in Christ. And notice that there is absolutely no chance of you missing out on your inheritance. If you were a child of God, justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there is no way that you will ever lose that inheritance. You're not going to miss it. You know, you, as you plow through the week and you see the inconsistencies in your own heart, inconsistency being a, use for, a euphemism for, uh, for sin, you see it in your own heart. And you wonder, Lord, I mean, how in the world can you, how can you justify giving me anything? How can I have any hope? I know me. I know me. I know what I'm capable of. How can you give me any good thing? And here is the promise that if you belong to him by his doing, through faith, there is absolutely no chance that you will miss your inheritance. You see what Peter's doing? He's connecting your hardships, your salvation, with joy. Verse 5, Peter says, You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation readied to be revealed at the last time. You say, well, when's the last time? Maybe today. 
we hope, going to be glorious on Sunday, that we're all gathered together and when he returns. And since you belong to Christ, you are, you are under God's protection, no matter how difficult the trials may be. God will bring you to your ultimate salvation, and you will receive the inheritance kept in heaven for you. It's yours. It's already yours. You just haven't had the opportunity to open, to open the package yet. You see, beloved, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not about you preserving yourself. It's about God preserving you. He is committed to infallibly bringing you to your final and eternal inheritance. After all, how did we get this inheritance in the first place? We'll look back at verse 3. According to his great mercy, he, what's the next word? He caused us to be born again. He was the cause. He is the cause of us being born again. If you were the cause of your salvation, you could have no assurance that you would receive it. But you didn't cause it. God did. And he did it from before the foundation of the world. You say, explain that to me. And I say, no. <laughs> I can't fully explain that to you. All I can tell you is that this is clearly taught in God's word. And he is committed to preserving you until the inheritance is yours. That's security. But there's more. When you receive your inheritance, you will be glorified. Look at verse 7. If you don't read this carefully, you're going to default. Like in Sunday school when someone asks a theological question and the answer is always Jesus. You could do that with this passage if you're not careful. So verse 7 says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have time to drill into this very deeply, hardly at all, in fact. But this is an amazing gift. And suffice it to say that the praise and glory and honor here Peter, that Peter is referring to are not being rendered to Jesus. They are being rendered to you. When you cross that finish line, and find yourself running through the first street of heaven. There will be a glorious cloud of saints who are clapping and cheering. And you will no doubt hear Jesus say, Well done. Well done, good and faithful slave. Good and faithful servant. I wish we had time this morning to look at other passages of Scripture that point to the same reality, but I'll need to let it rest here and let you do your own study. To them, this well-done, good and faithful servant and everything else that will happen on that day, there will be rejoicing. There won't be any scorecarding. You won't get third place. You will be victorious. And we should think about it often. This is the source of our joy. That this inheritance that God has promised is ours already. It's kept in heaven for you. And so we should think about these things. This is what the Apostle Peter is reminding us of. He's not commanding it. He's just reminding us. 
And we should remind ourselves and one another with these things, especially on the most difficult days or on the days when we are just kind of wore out and not walking in the Spirit and just barely keeping things together, you know, attitudinally. Maybe it's not cancer. Maybe it's not the death of a loved one. Maybe it's just your bad attitude. Beloved, we have every reason to celebrate Christ because even our struggles are instruments in God's hands for your good because all your trials are governed by the sovereign hand of your Savior. Charles Spurgeon once said this, okay, if you're a note taker, I'm going I'm to repeat this because you may want to just remember it. Charles Spurgeon once said, had any other condition been better for you than the one you are now in, divine love would have put you there. Again, he's talking about your trials. What are you struggling with right now? Had any other condition been better for you than the one you are now in, divine love would have put you there. You see, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so if you're struggling and suffering, it is not God withholding something from you that you need. It is God giving you something that you need, even if you don't appreciate it. Why should we celebrate Christmas? That was the first question. For all of these reasons and more, now let's think for a moment to, uh, of the second question. How should we celebrate Christmas? How should we celebrate? Now I'm not going to talk about how to decorate your house or anything like that. But look at verses 10 through 12 again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what time, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories? It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I mean, that's just on its face is an intriguing passage. There's so many questions, and I won't have time to answer them all. By God's grace, though, I thought about this this week. I have not preached First or Second Peter, so if the Lord allows me to continue, maybe someday, and we'll come back to this. Now, I want you to see that the prophets serve as an example of what it means to know the privilege of enjoying and anticipating the salvation that God has promised us in Christ. Even though they were the ones who recorded the prophecies of the coming Messiah, they didn't know everything. They didn't know everything. It wasn't the men who were inspired. It was the message. It was the words that were inspired. <clears throat> so they didn't know things like, when would he come? They didn't know. They knew where he would be born, because that was prophesied by one of them. How would he suffer? It had to be an enigma to them. How would he suffer? These were the men who wrote such passages as, <clears throat> let me just give you a sampling, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will name him Emmanuel, which means what, class? God with us. Not God in heaven, not God on his throne, but God with us. 
Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And then there was Micah 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. These were the words that were inspired through the prophets but they didn't understand everything. And Peter's telling us that the prophets who recorded the prophecies of Messiah had limited knowledge and understanding about the fulfillment of the messianic promises. So they prophesied of the grace that was to come. And what was the grace that was to come? It was none other than the person and the atoning work of the promised Messiah. So what did they do? What did they do? Well, they did what we all should do. They studied the Scriptures. They studied the Scriptures. And what were they looking for? Well, Peter says, they were seeking to understand who the Messiah was and when he would come. And not only that, but they studied about his suffering, his atonement for, on, the, on behalf of sinners. Now this all sounds like a direct connection to what we refer to as Christmas. It's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And not just his incarnation, but everything else about his life on earth for us. Beloved, my point is, if the prophets, with all their knowledge of the Bible, thought they needed to study the Scriptures to discover the glories of God's grace, how much more should we? In other words, we should celebrate Christmas by studying the promises of God in His Word. And not just on the holiday season, but all year long. This should be our lives. You remember when... Eric Zeller was here, and he unpacked the Beatitudes. Wasn't that sweet? Just the call to joy, to happiness. But not happiness in the things of this world. Happiness because of the promises, the great and glorious and shakable promises of God. That's the object of our faith. This is the object of our faith. And we have it not only on Christmas and Easter, but every day if we're walking with the Lord. And as if the prophets were not a sufficient example of what it means to know the privilege of, en of enjoying and anticipating the salvation of God and as he promised, Peter makes mention of the angels as well. Verse 12, things into which angels long to look. If you read the commentators, I think there's uh, a variety of opinions about this, but let me just share with you what I think he's saying. It really is amazing when you consider the fact that it was an angel who came to Mary to inform her of God's plan. Obviously, the angels knew something. And it was an angel who revealed to Zechariah that Messiah was about to be born. Moreover, it was a group of angels who announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds, saying, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared more angels, 
with this angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. By the way, when you see the bumper stickers at Christmas time, they extract that part about with whom he is pleased. Because he's not pleased with the world. But that's a different sermon. The angels were there for all of that. And yet, they didn't fully comprehend all that the gospel is for sinners such as you and I. You ever walk up on a conversation and uh, you, you kind of stand there listening and you think, I'm going to catch on. I'm going to catch on. I am not catching on. <laughs> and here I think the angels are watching and listening and they, they even have assignments in this, but they experientially... Spurgeon's eloquence is unmatched here. When he writes about the angels, he says, these dear attendants of our wandering footsteps here below, these patient guardians of our nightly hours, these angel guides who shall be our companions in death when life, when wife and child and friend can go no further with us, these glorious beings shall learn from our lips, listen carefully, these glorious beings will learn from our lips in heaven the manifold wisdom of God. They will cluster around, amazed and gladdened as one by one we stand upon the sea of glass and they will ask us to rehearse again and again the wonders of redeeming love and to tell them that what conversion means and and that sanctifi what sanctification meant for us, and how the power and wisdom of God and His grace, His patience, how they were all seen in the experience of each one of us. And we will be their joyful teachers, world without end. No angel has ever experienced what you have experienced in Christ. What we will experience in his presence is beyond our ability even to comprehend. The angels marvel at the gospel. They rejoice in what they know and they long to know more. How should we celebrate Christmas? Christmas. We should celebrate it by delving into the rich, eternal truths of Scripture to discover everything we possibly can about our eternal hope and the glories that await us when we receive our inheritance. How do you do that? Maybe a few suggestions. Perhaps read, resolve to read the Word of God every day. And pray, Lord, teach me, open my eyes, that I might see wonderful things in your law, in your word. And secondly, take notes when you hear a sermon or a Sunday school lesson. Stick them in your Bible, and the next time you have your quiet time, think about those things. Meditate on them. Third, read good books on the subject. Whatever the biblical subject is, Read, study, learn, put yourself under excellent teachers who can wrestle with these difficult truths sometimes. And so read good books and, and get whatever further training you can. You see, beloved, just as the Old Testament prophets looked forward to the coming of Messiah, so we long for the return of Messiah. If we're going to celebrate Christmas properly, if we're going to celebrate the Christ properly, we must fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is an eschatological revelation. And by that I mean 
It is not yet. It is not yet. But it is soon. He has promised. There is a song that we sing every year at Christmas time. You probably know it and have grown up with it. Joy to the world. You know what? I think we misunderstand that, that song. He's not really having us sing about the arrival of Jesus in the manger. Rather, he is having us sing about the return of Jesus. When he comes and fulfills his promise. Let me rehearse the words without the repetition, so it will sound a little funny. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Beloved, I realize that some of you are struggling with various trials and concerns right now. And I certainly don't want to minimize any of that. I want to maximize in your mind the glory and the joy of the precious promises of God that will be fulfilled on your behalf and should have an impact on the way you think and live every day. I simply want to point you to the Word of God and remind you that He's calling you to lift up your eyes above your problems, your griefs, your disappointments, and recognize how blessed you are to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You have every reason to celebrate Christmas. And you could do it if there were no decorations and no presents and no singing, or you would probably sing. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have a living hope that cannot be taken away. And so I say, rejoice, O troubled soul, for the wonder of Christmas has secured for you a living hope designed to fill your heart with unquenchable joy. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we find that these things are too marvelous for us, and yet so clear. Thank you. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who is on the fence about whether they should believe in Jesus. Lord, I, I can't change their heart, but your Spirit can. Would you so move in their hearts that they are surprised by the grace and the faith that is produced by grace in their hearts, that they find a love for Jesus, a love for his word, a desire to know more, Cause them, Father, to be born again to a living hope for their own eternal joy and for your eternal glory, we pray it in Jesus' name.